0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Zechariah chapter 3 is where we're at this morning. And uh, the visions, now there's been a series, we haven't got to them all yet, but there's a series of eight visions that Zechariah is receiving here. And. uh, chapters uh, 3 and 4 address really an issue that would undoubtedly come up in the heart of both Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now who were Zerubbabel and Joshua? Zerubbabel, this was after the captives were allowed to return from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and uh, they were allowed to rebuild the temple, and they started for a couple years. Zerubbabel was the governor And Joshua was the high priest at the time, and uh, they came up to some opposition, they grew disheartened, and and they stopped building after two years. Twelve years had passed by, and the Lord raised up Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet to encourage the people back into the work. Of rebuilding the temple, and the people started rebuilding the temple. Um, But for Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, you know, there's there's always a burden with leadership, a burden with those who are responsible. And undoubtedly, you know, here they're told that they can rebuild the temple, and it's not as glorious as as Solomon's temple, the one that was destroyed before. Um, But now that they're rebuilding the temple, the whole reason why they went into exile was because of their sin. And their rebellion, and now they're they're brought back into the land. They're restoring the temple, but the priesthood. You know, they they were in sin. They were that's why they went into captivity. And so after their exile for sin and rebellion, how could the Lord restore the priesthood? I don't know about you, but sometimes when does any of you guys sin besides myself? Okay, you know sometimes when you when you sin, you, you you miss the mark or you you drift in your relationship with the Lord, and then and then the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and you repent of your sin and you come back. Don't you feel sometimes just so totally unworthy? It's like Lord, how can you use me? I've blown it again. How can you use me? I'm so, I'm so, I'm such a piece of scum, you know. And and uh, how can you use a flawed man or a flawed woman like me? Not that I'm identifying, you, but if you were a woman, you might be thinking that. <laughs> well, these two uh, visions really address that issue, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, beginning with chapter three, verse one. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Joshua, again, he was the, the high priest there during that time in Jerusalem. And in this vision, he's standing before the angel of the Lord. And as we talked about last week, the angel of the Lord in Zechariah is what is known as a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. There are several places in the Old Testament where Jesus appears in there in different situations. And this in this vision, Joshua was standing to minister before the, the Son of God. And uh, what what does it mean he's standing? Well, he's standing as in the capacity of the high priest. And here in this vision, Joshua is representative of Jerusalem in this, vi- in this uh, vision. And so this vision, he sees Joshua standing there to minister as high priest before the Lord, and Satan standing on the right hand of Joshua to oppose him. Now Satan's name actually means adversary, and that's exactly what he is he 's your and my adversary he 's the adversary of god 's people. you know not only does he tempt you and I to sin, but when we do sin, he stands there to accuse us before god you know i'm i 'm really very anxious for this time that's coming, but in Revelation 12.10, it tells about a future time coming. It says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. There's going to be a time when our accuser is no longer going to be there accusing us before the Father. He's going to be cast down. And then so we get to verse 2 and the Lord said to Satan the Lord rebuke you Satan the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you is this not a brand plucked from the fire Notice that Joshua I mean in this vision Joshua's just standing there ministering he's not saying anything and it's not Joshua who's rebuking the Lord but the Lord himself in the New Testament in the book of Jude chapter 1 verse 9 it says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but say, The Lord rebuke you. You know, it's an amazing thing to me when Christians walk around rebuking Satan. And, uh, you know, it's, here we have this archangel, and an archangel doesn't even rebuke Satan, but says, The Lord rebuke you. Um, And so, here the Lord is rebuking Satan, not Joshua. And, uh, you know, as we'll find out here in verse 4, that uh, Satan's accusations, they're true. And we'll see this. Joshua, you know, he was standing there accused. Um, But here the Lord says um, in verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. For you and me as believers, you know, sometimes we think, well, God got such a good catch when he got me, you know. I was was really, you know, doing all this stuff, and now the Lord got a hold of me, and now, you know, he's really got a good thing. Well, you know, we didn't find the Lord. The Lord chose us. And uh, in Romans 8.33, It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Those are those who God chose. It is God who justifies. And so here the Lord is defending Joshua here. And he says to Satan, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What's a brand? Well, a brand is a barely burning, almost spent stick of firewood. It's barely, it's just smoldering. It's, it's almost lost all of its usefulness for, for burning a fire. It's, it's at the end of its, of its life, basically. It's barely alive. And he says, this, this is not a brand plucked from the fire, delivered from the fire. And Jerusalem at this time was just a burnout, smoldering twig that God pulled from the fire. I don't know if you feel burned out this morning. maybe in your walk with the Lord, you're barely, barely spiritually alive. You feel like, man, I, I feel like that, that brand there. Just uh, there's not much left. I'm just barely hanging on there. I like what it says about Jesus. It says, "A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench." Such a comfort to me. Well, verse three. It says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. So again, you know, Satan's accusing Joshua. And, you know, as a high priest, Joshua was not clothed in the clothing of the high priest. He was in filthy garments. Yesterday, my wife and I, uh, we, we loaded up three loads. And Luke, actually, and Katharina helped us, too. We loaded up three loads of compost and uh, put it into this new... Two tiered garden that that uh, I create or I built uh, with some help from my other son, and uh, you know by the time we were done, I mean head because it rained during that we were head to toe just mud. I mean it was like it was everywhere, and uh, we were filthy. This filthy is not what that's talking about though. This filthy actually, the word filthy means smeared and soiled with refuse and excrement. I don't need to go into much detail, but that's what this filthy literally means here. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, it tells us that we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. That's a different filthy, by the way. In Isaiah 64, that referring to menstrual claws is what that's referring to. But this excre- excrement and, and refuse, I mean, it, it's, it's much worse. Joshua was totally defiled standing there before the Lord, totally defiled. So Satan was, was right. Yeah, he, look at this guy. He's standing there before you, and, and look what, how he's clothed. And you see, the Jews of Jerusalem, they had nothing to glory in. They had been brought so low in their exile. You know, this is a, a really a picture of what is so important for each and every person in life. We need to reach that point where we realize, man, there is nothing good in me. There's nothing that I can do to please God. Nothing I can do, you know, in works or going to church or whatever to make God happy with me. It has nothing to do with us. There's nothing good in us. And we reach that point where we humbly acknowledge our sin and our need for a Savior. And that's the critical point in each person's life, where they have to come to that place. Well, verse 4, Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. There's two things that take place here in this verse. First of all, the Lord removes Joshua's filthy garments. And of course, that's symbolic of Jerusalem's sin and iniquity. But he doesn't just remove the garments. He then replaces Joshua's garments with rich robes. In other words, robes that would be fitting for a priest to minister in. You know, this theme runs throughout Scripture all the way back to the first sin. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, You know, they they sinned, they ate of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and right when they did that, their eyes were opened. And up until that point, they didn't even know they were naked, but at that point they realized, man, we don't have any clothes on. Because they knew between good and evil, they were able to distinguish at that point. And then the guilt and the shame kicked in. And so what did they do? They tried to clothe themselves, They grab some fig leaves and they sew together fig leaves to try to try to cover themselves. And in Genesis chapter three, the Lord sacrifices. You know, in Genesis three, that's when the first animal was killed, and God's the one that killed him. The Lord kills a lamb in Genesis three, skins the lamb, and he provides tunics. For Adam and he, he replaces the clothing that they tried to make out of leaves and he gives them animal skins to wear to cover their nakedness. You know, at that point, the Lord must have taught Adam and Eve about the necessity of blood atonement with that first sacrifice because you get to the next chapter in chapter four and you remember the story about Abel and Cain. Abel was a, was a, uh, 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 a shepherd and, and Cain was a farmer, and, and it came time to offer to the Lord, and Abel offers the Lord the firstborn of his flock. And the Bible says the Lord respected his offering. But then Cain, meanwhile, being the farmer, he just offers the fruit of the ground. And the Bible says the Lord did not respect his offering. I always used to struggle with that. It's like, why? They both offered something to the Lord. Why didn't the Lord accept Cain's offering? What's with that? Well, I think it's because the Lord had taught them that there's a necessity of blood sacrifice. Blood has to be shed. And so... Here, Cain, a beautiful picture, not a beautiful, but a picture of man always trying to clothe themselves with their own righteousness, trying to do their own thing to try to please God. That's really what religion is. Religion is man trying to please God in his own strength and in his own abilities. Well, this theme continues throughout Scripture, from Adam and Eve all the way down to the New Testament. On Wednesday nights, we're going through Matthew And just a couple nights ago, or a couple Wednesdays ago, we talked about the parable of the wedding. And and there's all these guests that are invited, and in that culture, they were giving wedding clothes to attend this wedding ceremony. And a guy walks in there, and he doesn't have the clothing on. He's got some just street clothes or whatever. And, and, And they said, how did you get in here? And they ended up kicking him out, because he didn't have the right clothing well, I mentioned this, this theme runs all the way from Genesis, but it goes all the way to Revelation. At the end of the book, Revelation nineteen seven verse 8, the church is rejoicing. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. See, there's this exchange that takes place. The Lord God, when you come to Jesus Christ, he removes our iniquity, he forgives our sins, but he doesn't just leave us there, he replaces it, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his clothing of righteousness. And it's it's just a relationship with the Lord, it's not a religion. Verse 5, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So if you picture this, you know, Zechariah is seeing Joshua. He's in this filthy clothing, and, and, and the Lord removes that filthy clothing and gives him rich, clean robes to wear. And Zechariah is so excited about it, he's caught up in the moment, and he asks the angel to put clean, a clean turban on Joshua's head, one that the high priest would wear in the temple. And so they do that. Verse 6, Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. This is an admonition to walk uprightly, for Joshua, But notice that the admonition comes after Joshua is clothed in clean robes. The Lord didn't say, Joshua, clean up your act, and then I'm going to give you these clean clothes to wear. He doesn't do that. You know, there's a story in the Bible, in the New Testament, where a woman, she was caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. So there's, there was no question about her guilt. And they drag her before Jesus. And they know that Jesus is a compassionate man, but they also know that he's, you know, he's gotta be, you know, there's the law about adultery. And so what's Jesus gonna do? And so they they bring this this woman, they say, We've caught her in the very act of adultery. What are you gonna do? And Jesus basically says, Hey, the first one well, at first he doesn't say anything. He sits down on the ground and starts writing in the sand. It's kind of kind of wonder what he was writing. But then he gets up and he says, Hey, the first one. Uh, first one of you that 's innocent cast the stone, you know cast the first stone and starts with the older guys all the way down nobody everybody they just drop their stones and they walk away basically, and pretty soon there's no one standing there but Jesus and this lady and it says after her accusers left one by one, and this is in John eight verse ten it says when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her woman, Where are those accusers of yours?' Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, the Lord first forgave her, and then he told her, Go and sin no more. This is what the Lord's telling Joshua. Hey, I've given you clean clothes. Now start walking uprightly before me. You and I, we've been forgiven from our sins and we've been justified. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We've been forgiven, we've been set free, but now we need to walk in that justification. Jesus writes a letter, or dictates a letter, I guess because John's the one that wrote it, in the, the book of Revelation to the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis was the dead known as the dead church. And they, he says, you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. And, then, and, he, and he speaks to them about their sin, and then later on he tells them, yet you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know, Paul told the Ephesians, there I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so for, you, for us, you know, we've been forgiven, but now we need to act like we've been forgiven. We need to live like we've been forgiven, like we've been justified. Verse 8, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. See, Joshua and his fellow priests, having been forgiven and given new clothing, and then having been recommissioned to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, now they're being told they're symbolic of things to come. You see, because the ultimate cleansing and restoration of Israel is going to happen with the coming of the Lord's servant, who is called here the branch and the stone. The branch, that's one of the ways the Lord God described the coming Messiah. Jeremiah prophesied twice of the branch. He says that he would descend from the line of David, He would be a king who reigns and executes judgment and righteousness in the earth. And in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And his name would be called the Lord, our righteousness. Isaiah also prophesies about the branch. But he's also the stone. In Psalm 118.22 it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus quotes this in Matthew uh, 21 and he says and whoever falls on this stone will be broken but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder and what, he, what he's referring to is the fact that when you and I when we when we fall on the stone when we humble ourselves on the stone we'll, we'll be brought low we'll be humbled but if we don't do that there's a time coming when the stone's going to fall on us and it'll crush us and grind us to powder In Romans 9.33, Paul writes, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block. They They couldn't see him as their Messiah, and he's a rock of offense. But whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There in verse 9, it says, Upon the stone are seven eyes, Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. Seven eyes, you know, the, the number seven, it's the number of completeness. And so what this is referring to is, is the complete vision, the complete understanding, the complete knowledge of the branch, or of the Messiah, of the Lord. Speaking of his omniscience. Or You might be going through a difficult thing that maybe maybe you can't even share anything with people around you. People, you know, you come in this morning and people say, "How are you doing?" And it's like, you know, there's something really heavy, and it's like, man, I, I just can't share that with them. Oh, I'm doing okay, and you feel like, man, nobody knows. Well, the thing is, the Lord knows. He knows what you're going through. He sees what your week's been like. He understands your heart. The Lord knows. It says, the Lord of hosts would engrave an inscription on this stone. Now, it's interesting. The high priest, when he would go into the temple, he wore an ephod that represented, which had all these stones on it, which represented the the names of the tribes of Israel. But he also had these onyx stones, these bars on his shoulders, that were engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. It was really a reminder of, of the people that he was representing before the Lord. It was a bur- a burden that he was carrying for Israel every time he would go in and minister to the Lord. You know, the Bible tells us when Jesus, our high priest, when he represented us before the Lord, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was that joy? Well, that joy was you and I. He, he went to the cross with that burden, knowing that, It was a joyful burden for him because he knew that his sacrifice would set you and I free from sin and from death. So it could be referring to that. Or it could be referring to the physical marks on the body of Jesus, the branch, because the branch would have marks placed on him. His flesh would be torn from him when he was flogged. His, he'd have nail prints in his hands and his feet. There'd be a spear wound in his side. There'd be thorn prints from the, from the crown of thorns that they, that they beat into his forehead, his t- into his temple. Could be referring to that as well. But at the end of verse 9, for Jerusalem, there at the end of, of verse 9, it says, And I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And what that's referring to is the day during the great tribulation when the remnants see and recognize Jesus as their Messiah. The Bible says all Israel will be saved at that time. But ultimately, that one day, you could ask any one of these kids in our Sunday school, you know, what what that one day is, and they probably tell you it was the day when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of mankind 2,000 years ago. In one day, all our sins were dealt with there on the cross. It says in verse 10, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, Everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Of course, that speaks of peace and prosperity, and that will only come when Messiah, the branch, the stone, reigns from Jerusalem. And so if you're Joshua, now, you know, Zechariah is one having this vision, but undoubtedly he related this to Joshua and to Zerubbabel. What an encouragement this must have been for Joshua. I don't know if you're encouraged this morning, but if you want peace and prosperity, if you want encouragement in your lives, then just look to the branch. Look to Jesus, the Messiah. I like that song. We used to sing it years ago uh, when I first gave my heart to the Lord, but it's like Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Some of you guys remember that song, little chorus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of life will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And it's so true you and i were going through difficult things man just just start looking at the lord look at what he did for you you know what an what an encouragement that would have been for joshua and now chapter 4 really deals with an encouragement for zerubbabel beginning with verse 1 it says now the angel who talked with me came back and wanked, wakened me as a man who was wakened out of sleep and <clears throat> excuse me and he said to me what do you see so i said i am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. I was, as I was reading this, I was trying to draw it on a you know, kind of a piece of paper, trying to figure out exactly what uh, he was saying. It's, it's an interesting lamp to try to picture, but there was this bowl on top, of with seven pipes going to each of the seven lamps of the lampstand. And, uh, you know, seven, like I mentioned before in the Bible, it's the number of completion. And so each one of these seven lamps is supplied with seven pipes that the oil flows down to these, to these lights. And so you have seven times seven. In other words, you have just an ultimate picture of completeness. It's like complete completeness or an abundance of completeness. And uh, you know, you know, this this lamp is it's got all these pipes flowing to, to supply this oil for this lamp, and in other words, the lamps were kept lit with an abundance of olive oil. And in the Bible, the oil basically speaks of the Holy Spirit. I came across this commentary from Charles Feinberg, and he he speaks about holy the Holy Spirit as as oil. And he he takes these different characteristics of oil and compares it to the Holy Spirit. And first of all, oil lubricates. And and the Holy Spirit, you know, it eliminates friction and it produces smoothness. In the body of Christ here, when the Holy Spirit is dwelling here among us, there's that peace and there's that unity of the Holy Spirit. Oil also heals. And only the Spirit of God can heal our broken hearts. Oil provides light, and the Holy Spirit, of course, illuminates the Word of God. It shows us also the path that you and I should walk. And then oil warms, and the Holy Spirit, you know, He penetrates and heats those areas in our lives and in our hearts that have grown cold. If there's an area in your life this morning, it's like, you know, I'm just, I feel cold, and the Invite the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to come in and, and to warm that up once more in your life. Oil also invigorates, it increases energy. And, and of course, the Holy Spirit gives us our energy. Oil adorns, it's used in feasts, it gives off a fragrance. And for you and I who are filled with the Holy Spirit, there's that joy that just emanates from a spirit filled Christian. Someone who's walking in obedience to the Lord and just full of the Holy Spirit—it's just there's just this this joy that exudes from them. And then finally, oil polishes. Not only is it smooth and lubricate, but it takes off the rough edges and it beautifies. And and you just think of the believer, you know, when, when we first come to Christ. And you know, I, I remember my my sister in law when she got saved. You know, she was she came from a pretty rough background and she still had some really rough edges, but it was It was just fun to watch the Holy Spirit just start to work in her life because she just smoothed out you know I mean there was just the rough edges just started to you could see the Holy Spirit just working in her life and and, and she just became a beautiful person uh, where at before there was that ugliness of sin in her life and and so it was just neat to see how the Holy Spirit did that, but that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so here, there's this lamp filled with this, this unending, overabundance flow of this oil. And Zechariah also sees two olive trees on either side of the bowl, supplying oil to the lamps there. and verse 4, he says, Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong verse, <laughs> wrong chapter. Verse 4, So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and ye shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So, Zechariah, he's looking at this lamp and he sees these two olive trees. And he, and he asks the angel, Hey, hey what are these things? And it's interesting. The angel does not give him a direct answer what they are, but he tells him more importantly what they represent and what they mean. What do they mean? They mean, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That abundance of the Holy Spirit available. Zerubbabel, the work that you're going to do, it's not going to be by power. It's not going to be by might. It's only going to be by my Holy Spirit. Whenever you and I try to do things for the Lord, we try to do it in our own strength. There's there's that weakness there, but when we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us, it's the Holy Spirit that provides us power. Everything you put your hand to, Zerubbabel, it won't succeed because of your power or your might but only by my Holy Spirit. Zerubbabel would have needed to have heard this. And not only that, but this picture, this lamp, with all these pipes flowing, there's a complete abundance of the Holy Spirit available to you, Zerubbabel. And that's true for you and I this morning as well. And so he says here, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. What was the mountain that he's speaking at? Well, probably it was a rubble. <laughs> Literally there was a rubble of of what was left of the temple, the original temple and of, of Jerusalem. There's just rubble, and it was probably a mountain of rubble, and maybe that was a, a, a literal picture for them. But also, as we know, the Jews faced opposition from their enemies all around Jerusalem, and that was a mountain. That was a mountain to overcome. Not only that, as the leaders of these Jewish people, and, and a lot of them had gone back to the work of just rebuilding their own paneled homes. We saw that in in Haggai. He would probably also, the burden, the mountain would be overcoming the lethargy of some of those Jews who probably just had given up. They weren't interested in rebuilding the temple. So, what were with all those mountains? It said it's going to become a, a plain, not because of Zerubbabel's mitre power, but because of the Holy Spirit. Just that complete just reliance on the Holy Spirit in everything that we do. Verse 70 says. Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. What is a capstone? Well, that would be the finishing touch to the temple. You know, the very first stone was the cornerstone. You lay the cornerstone in the foundation and you measure everything off of the, of the cornerstone. If that thing's not right, everything else is going to be off. So, so that cornerstone is foundational. It, it's, it's so important to have that there. And then, of course, there's the capstone when you're finally finished with the capstone. And, of course, Jesus, the Bible says, he's the cornerstone. But he's also the capstone. And the Bible says that he's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. Everything starts and ends with Jesus Christ. The Bible says he's the author and the finisher of our faith. You know what a great uh, encouragement that would have been for Zerubbabel and and what would Zerubbabel be shouting but grace grace. You know sometimes in our lives we just we, we start out with our walk with the Lord and pretty soon we end up getting you know we start doing things in our own strength or we start neglecting things and 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 we get reminded we have to come back to a relationship with the Lord. It's just, it's just simple relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we make it complicated sometimes in our own lives. It's just that simple reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go through our life and we, we start out with our, with our walk with the Lord and we finish with the Lord, what's that sh- word that we're going to be shouting out at the end? It's just It's been God's grace. By grace, I'm here this morning with you folks. By grace, you're here as well. It has nothing to do with us. It, all, it has everything to do with God and His grace and His mercy. What a beautiful picture that would be. And then verse 8. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. What Zerubbabel has started, he's going to finish. In Philippians 1.6, Paul writes this, being very confident of this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord God has, has brought you and I into a relationship with him, and it's the Lord God who's going to carry us through as we rely on him, as we depend on him. He's going to finish that work in our lives. Proverbs four eighteen it says, but the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. I want to encourage you this morning. Maybe maybe you feel like, man, I'm just struggling and I'm, I'm just I just can't seem to get everything right. You know what? The Lord, as you submit to the Lord, man, He's going to do that work in your life. He's going to bring you to that completion in in life. It's not it's not the work that we do. It's what the Lord does through us and he's the one that's going to complete it. Verse 10, for who has despised the day of small things? For these seven, uh, for these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which stand scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And so he's told Zerubbabel don't despise the day of small things. Now for Zerubbabel, it was 14 years of small things. I mean, I think I mean the temple. It was it was nothing compared compared to Solomon's temple. It says the older people that you know that they were there before the exile, or they were probably children during the exile. They remember Solomon's temple, and it was glorious and it was splendid. But but then it was destroyed, and so now these these ragtag group of, of pilgrims, basically, there's only about less than fifty thousand out of you know how, whoever knows how many million Jews went into exile. Only 50,000 came back. So there's a small group, and, and, and the, as they're building the temple, the oldest of the, of the returning exiles, they started weeping. The younger ones were excited. Man, we're finally building a temple. But the older ones were weeping because they go, Man, we remember the glory of the temple. And it just broke their hearts to see that just the, the meager thing that they were building. I was sharing this with a pastor friend of mine. You know, I. I it's, it seems like my ministry has been a day of small things. You know, it's like everything's been small. I, sometimes we get people here from uh, large Calvary chapels, you know, and there's some very large Calvary chapels. And I go, yeah, we're micro chapel. You know, it's like we're the small version of Calvary chapel, you know. And, and uh, you know, I look at some of the outreaches that we've done and, and, and they just seem like there's just not, we don't have thousands of people coming to the Lord and anything like that. Everything seems like, it's small. And Zerubbabel, you know, he had 14 years of small things, and yet the Lord says it's a day of small things. It's just a day. See, in the scope of eternity, man, it's just a blip. It's just a blip on the screen, the lives. And so we need to remind ourselves, and, and Zerubbabel being reminded that there's a season and there's a time. And in the scope of eternity, it's just a blip. But, you know, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.28, he's talking about how God has chosen the weak and, and just the, the foolish things of the world. And verse 28 says, And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He reminded of Gideon. Remember Gideon? He had all these armies, he had all these soldiers available to fight the Midianites, and the Lord said, no, that's too many. And, and he will them down to basically 300 men to fight this massive army of Midianites. And, and why did God do it? So that Gideon wouldn't get any claim for glory. And so the Lord, you know, it's like don't despise those days as small things because those are the days that the Lord wants to do a work in our hearts. The Lord's doing a work in us and, and he's also doing a work that people, you, we can't take credit for anything. It's just look what God's done. I mean, we're nothing. We're insignificant, but look what God's done. God's done a great thing. He mentions verse 10, the seven. uh, He says, uh, For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout uh, the whole earth. These seven eyes, the eyes of the Lord. And see, the Lord is rejoicing to see Zerubbabel putting his hand back to the plow, so to speak. He's Zerubbabel, and, and the men that he's, and the people that he's leading, they're refocused on serving the Lord and rebuilding the temple, and that's what the Lord was looking for in their eyes, in his eyes. That's what he's looking for throughout the world. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, we were told, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That word loyal means whole and not divided the lord god his eyes are looking throughout the whole earth looking for men and women that are completely devoted to him whose hearts are not divided it's one of the things i think we as christians struggle with is divided hearts there's so many things out there that are competing for our for our attention for our loyalties the lord god is looking for those whose hearts are wholly set on him this morning verse 11 Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? So he's basically asking the same question again. Verse 12, And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. So he said, "These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth." That, that's a this is a tough verse to translate or to understand or something. But basically, he's reasking the first question. You know, what are these two trees? But then he starts noticing and he focuses on the two branches of the two trees, that are supplying oil into the lampstand. And he says, well, what are these things? And he's told that they are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Well, what is that referring to? Well, it could be partially referring to Zerubbabel and Joshua. They were leading the remnant of captives into the rebuilding of the temple, but since there's two branches from two trees, some people suggest that it represents the office of king and priest in Israel. That's, a, that's another possibility. But it's interesting that we do know this. In Revelation eleven four. 4, during the Great Tribulation, there's going to be two men who are called the two witnesses. They're going to come back to Jerusalem, and they're going to preach the gospel, and they're going to, they're going to be basically preaching to those that are standing around in Jerusalem, and the whole earth is going to basically see them probably through satellite TV or whatever. Um, But it says there in 11 verse 4 of Revelation, it says the two witnesses during the Great Tribulation are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So it could be looking fast forward to these guys. Well, who are those two witnesses? A lot of people think that it's Moses and Elijah. Because if you look at the miracles that they do, they look like uh, they're 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 attributed to Moses and Elijah. Um, we're definitely, I definitely personally, my opinion, they definitely one of them is Elijah, um, because the Lord says that Elijah will come before that great day. Um, but the other one, who's the other one, could be Moses, but it could also be Enoch. Remember Enoch? Enoch was the man who walked with God, and then and then he wasn't because God took him. Both he. Enoch and Elijah were the only two people that didn't die, that were translated up to heaven. Um, The Bible says it's appointed to men to die once and then judgment. So, you know, in my thinking, it's like, well, there's only two people that have not died. And so for someone who's already died to come back and die again, because these witnesses are going to get killed in Jerusalem, to me that doesn't make a a whole lot of sense. Um, But Enoch is a type of the church. It's a picture of the church because it's a picture of the rapture of the church. Enoch was walking with God, and then he was not, for God took him. But when this occurs, the witnesses come back. The church is already in heaven because this is during the Great Tribulation. So maybe that picture doesn't it doesn't need to be a picture anymore. And so he comes back to with Elijah um, to uh, to witness, and then he ends up dying. Well, in any event, um, I don't know who this, what this verse is referring to, and I, I think... Uh, uh, it's not a entirely clean or clear. Not clean. It's not entirely clear who's being referred to here. But in any event, when you go through these two visions, both Joshua and Zerubbabel must have been greatly encouraged by these, as they were related to them by Zechariah. Because first of all, for Joshua, man, he was in filthy rags, but there was nothing. God's the one that defended him. God's the one that gave him clean clothing. For you and I today in our relationship with the Lord, it's not what you and I do. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's clothed us in his righteousness. And for Zerubbabel, you know, whatever you face, Zerubbabel, and maybe you're in a, in, in a small situation, you've got a mountain ahead of you, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. That's been one of my, my prayers for Calvary Chapel Rochester, is that everything that we do is done through the Holy Spirit. It's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We may be small, but the Lord' uh, size doesn't matter to God. He works through it, no matter what, by his Holy Spirit. And so what an encouragement that would have been for those two guys. And this morning, I hope that you're encouraged as well in your relationship with the Lord. Why don't we stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for the reminders this morning in our own lives, Lord God, that you've, you've forgiven us. And, and Lord, you're, you're desiring that we would walk wholeheartedly in our relationship with you, Lord God. Lord, Lord, we've been set free and we're, we're, we're clean. We've been forgiven. We've been given justification. And now, Lord, that we would walk in that justification. Lord, that we would be obedient to you in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to do those things. And, Lord, we know that in our own strength we're powerless to do that. And so, Heavenly Father, we just rely on your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord. I pray that you would fill each and every person here this morning with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would go in the strength that you supply. Lord God, that we would stop trying to do things in our own strength, but we would just allow you to do that work through us, Lord. And so I just thank you for those wonderful reminders this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people this week, especially as they celebrate uh, Memorial Day weekend. And Lord, I just ask that, Lord, this coming week they might just see your hand in, in their lives, Lord, that they might hear your voice speaking to them that, Lord, they may understand that, Lord, you love them, that you have a plan and you have a purpose for each of our lives. And that, Lord, you will see it to completion, Lord. And so thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.